This B Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. IXL's all-inclusive online teaching and learning platform simplifies ed tech needs and accelerates achievement in 95 of the top 100 U.S. school districts. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and it helps you assess student performance through actionable real-time insights at every level of your school or district. This one solution performs work that typically requires dozens of different tools. Want to find out why so many leading districts trust IXL? Visit IXL.com forward slash B-E. That's IXL.com forward slash B-E. TL Talk Radio, Season 2, Episode 36. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 36 of TL Talk Radio, a regular podcast with Lynn Funyhen and Randy Ziganfus, where our goal is to engage you in learning, motivate you to share your work, and inspire you to lead for the change we need in schools for the digital age. I'm Randy Ziganfus. And I'm Lynn Funyhen. Good afternoon, Randy. Good afternoon, Lynn. So today, uh, we're really excited to talk with an educator, Bob Crumley from Alaska. So this is a great opportunity to connect with someone all the way on the other side of the country, six time zones <laughs> away. <laughs> and um, this is the first in a series of schools that we're working towards student-centered competency learning models. And this season, we've done many podcasts on personalizing and individualized learning. And with this mini series, we want to amplify that practitioner's voice. Uh, so we'll be connecting with some innovative schools and leaders around the country, and they will tell us their story. And um, we're very appreciative of Kelly and Monica at Education Reimagined for helping us find these practitioners and make these connections. So our first in the series is a conversation with Bob Crumley. Bob is superintendent of the Rural School District of Chugach School District in Alaska. He was born and raised in Montana where he earned his teaching credentials. Um, he has worked with the Chugach School District for over 20 years as a head teacher, principal, assistant superintendent, and finally the superintendent for the last 11 years. During this tenure, he has played a key role in developing Chugach's innovative performance-based educational system. This experience has provided him a unique perspective on how to align and coordinate all aspects of the school system so that it indeed does work for each and every student. As the first education recipient of the Malcolm Baldrige National Quality Award in 2001, the Chugach School District has proven that this common sense approach to doing what is best for students can truly provide world-class educational opportunities, even in a geographically isolated remote Alaskan communities. So pretty exciting. Thank you for being here, Bob. Well, thank you for the invitation. It's exciting after, to be here. After doing some research on your school district, it's fascinating what you've been able to accomplish. So yeah. to start off our conversation today, tell us about your school district and this voyage to excellence. Well, thank you. Yes, I would like to. And I'd start by saying it's not what I've accomplished. It's, it's what we as a, as a team has, have accomplished. Uh, in around, uh, I guess, 1994, we uh, looked at what the data was and all kinds of indicators, that balanced scorecard approach, and knew that regardless of what we did, we had to do some things differently. We weren't meeting student needs as well as we needed to. So we didn't know what this new system might look like, but we engaged our community uh, communities, uh, we engaged business partners, uh, and our leadership made a five-year commitment to uh, gathering input and starting to make changes and see it through for at least five years before we became a pendulum and just swing back to uh, traditional education. And that was an important uh, public commitment from our, our board and our superintendent in the, in the beginning days. Um, but then, you know, the community input was what I call a lot of common sense uh, questions. You know, people would say, you know, why do we have to be in a grade for 180 days? Because we know all the students are learning at different rates. 
and some students will be done a little earlier and some might take a little longer. Is there a way to make the system work where time isn't the constant any longer, but learning is the constant and that time be the variable? And that was a challenge to figure out how to make a system work that way, but we did. Um, and through this input process, uh, with those kinds of common sense questions, people began to, in our communities, students, staff, community members, began to see that we were following through on the input we received. And we were honoring that input and integrating it into the new system of education, whatever that was going to end up being. And that was, I would say, the most powerful piece of our change process, our transformation, was that we built ownership between the, uh, of the system from students and from staff members and community members. It was no longer the school boards or the superintendent's system. It was their system. And in the past, when there was a problem or an issue or a challenge to overcome, it was easy for community, staff, students, whomever, to point at the school district and say, hey, this is your system. You need to fix this. But when that ownership occurred, all of a sudden the, that mindset changed and people began to say, hey, this is our system and there's an issue that needs to be resolved. Let's figure this out. How can we solve it together rather than pointing fingers and, and doing that blame game? And so that's how it all began. And that, as I say, that first part, I've seen a lot of school reform efforts happen. Um, that first part with us, which took multiple years, was instrumental and key to continuing the momentum we built in in order to make the the transformation stick. Does that help as a starting point? Absolutely. And it, <laughs> there are two there are two takeaways that uh, I see from from what you're explaining here that that I see um, probably as. Uh, sort of pain points and most other mm -hmm. uh, transformations and transitions. And that is one building the capacity of all those stakeholders within the system. So it sounds like um, it wasn't this sort of top down leadership is saying, do this and everybody just jumps and does that. You actually right. engaged people in that hard work of having a conversation around what needed to be done. And um, you empowered them and gave them some ownership and responsibility in doing this. So I'm, I'm sensing this whole idea of keep coming back to like building capacity for your students to, to engage in this, for your parents to engage in this, for your uh, school leaders and teachers, et cetera. And the second thing is this commitment to the long term. And I see we see a lot of times in school reform efforts that it's, you know, you mentioned the pendulum or whichever way the wind's blowing today or whichever politicians, you know, in control or whichever parties in control uh, of this of the state general assembly, uh, they get to dictate what's going on and and we just sort of like uh good servants uh seem to just go in that direction and we really never we miss out on that opportunity to give time so that these things actually have a chance of happening and especially something like moving towards personalized learning uh is a huge shift uh in what we do and in the way that we think and it is something that doesn't happen in you know a short term it happens in the long term and it sounds like uh, you and your organization really made a commitment to say, this is a big change and we're going to give the time to allow that and see what happens. Yep, you're right on target. And <laughs> again, I've seen uh, others try to replicate what we've done and with mixed results. And a lot of times the folks that are less successful in and, and you can't completely replicate it, but make a version of something mm -hmm. that we have. We call it performance-based. Others call it competency-based uh, in the lower 48, it sounds like. But, uh, you know, when folks struggle with making it stick, uh, it's oftentimes related to that lack of deliberate time spent on building ownership and building that capacity 
um, and giving it the long-term time to to germinate and grow and and take root. Otherwise, you know, and that and I've seen that's that's been part of the problem with it not being successful in other districts. Yeah, so I think you give us two really strong takeaways there. So thinking about that, talk to us a little bit about how you did and how you have and continue to embrace the performance-based learning as, as you're calling it. Um, and can you talk about the shifts in learning where learning used to be the con- constant and now we have this, this variable of time where we had time, you had to have 180 days in a single grade level and now it sounds like it looks different for you and your organizations. Sure. So we still need to meet state and federal regulations of, you know, number of days of school and state testing and and so forth. Our students still on paper are in grades, like a third grader, a fifth grader. Um, But that's not the information that's important to them. They know that in science, they might be at level three, they might be in math, they might be in level four. Um, They know, in fact, (laughs) just like we know that students or youth or adults that play games, they know all about levels and advancing from level to level. I got to get to the next level. And so it's, <laughs> it's a good analogy. <laughs> yeah, they all know about that. And so they have levels in 10 content areas and they go through those levels and advance to the next level when they've mastered or proven proficiency at the previous level. And that can happen in the middle of the week, the middle of the quarter, the middle of the semester, in the summer. It can happen whenever. And so no longer does, a, say, a third grader receive third grade curriculum. They receive instruction and, and use resources in all 10 content areas that are aligned with the levels of performance uh, that they are demonstrating. And so, for example, um, a common sense question again that came up was, well, if individual learning or no individual education plans are good for some students and, and with special needs, are are there any students that wouldn't benefit from some sort of accommodation at some point in their education? And you know, the answer we came up with is no. There's you know, an accommodation would probably benefit all students at some point in some way. So rather than just having individual education plans for specifically designated students with some special needs, we developed individual learning plans for every student in the district. And students would be engaged and parents would be engaged in identifying some strengths, some areas where there's opportunity from growth for growth, and they would develop a a unit of learning. Sometimes it would be in one content area. Some many times it's in multiple content areas, often project based, and they would, in that uh, process, determine how they would demonstrate proficiency of the standards they were working on in those content areas. And, and have a timeline and so forth and uh, complete that individual learning plan. And when they complete it, they're you know, proving proficiency in those standards. Then they will write a new individual learning plan. Um, as they grow and mature through our system and become high school students, pretty soon they're writing their own individual learning plans. Um, in the u- younger grades, you know, they're, it's all scaffolded, of course, uh, Parents and teachers play a a far more, a larger role in helping them develop those individual learning plans. But uh, that's an example of how we continue to individualize. I get nervous when I hear people saying personalized education is code for technology. We're going to replace teachers with screens. And that's not what we see as personalized education. We certainly use technology. We have to because our schools are very spread out and geographically isolated. And we need to use technology such as Skype and so forth to provide a lot of our instruction and and so forth. 
But that doesn't mean we are personalizing by replacing teachers with computers, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a that is a big misinterpretation of that of the phrase personalized learning. So really interesting, this idea of an individualized learning plan for each student um, makes me think or connect back to our interview with Barbara Bray, Randy, and talking about some of the resources that she has with personalized learning and helping teachers to uncover strengths and needs of students and working with students on that team. Um, you said you include students in the development of those plans and um, scaffold it for your younger students, but your high school students are taking ownership of those. And, and that's pretty exciting. I mean, talk about individualizing and, and personalizing for students based on um, interest in, and needs. Um, so that's, that's really exciting <laughs> to hear. Yeah, it is. In the beginning years, we had students kind of, they weren't, you know, because they had grown up uh, in the traditional education model and they switched maybe in middle school or high school. And that was a challenging part uh, to make that switch with students mm -hmm. who, were, who were very comfortable in the traditional system. Mm -hmm. uh, today, we don't have any students that grew up in the traditional system. All of our students have, you know, I've been with the district 22 years and we've been doing this longer than 22 years, so, or as or around 22 years. So all of our students think this is our model of education. Right. Is Everybody does it. Right. But that, that middle ground when we had to make that switch was a very challenging time. And in that period, students did, we will, we will say, flounder or languish for a while because they felt that, okay, time is now the variable so I can put things off. And, uh, and they could graduate when, rather than waiting, you know, or graduating in their 12th grade year. You know, maybe I want to graduate in my 13th or my 14th year of school. And, and we allowed that. And in the beginning, we had more, we'll call it late graduates than, than on time or early graduates. And today we have, because we've made the transformation and we've made it stick, we have more early graduates than late mm -hmm. uh, even though those are both relative terms because they're in the traditional model and we're not the traditional model. So talk a little bit about the why. You, I think you mentioned earlier some urgency back in the 90s that, that sort of said, sure. mm, we, have to do, we have to change. So talk about the why around why this particular kind of change. Why more moving towards personalized learning? Why didn't you choose some other direction? It came from the communities, from the input, um, and we learned through through the process. Um, we didn't even know about Malcolm Baldridge, that, that whole framework, uh, when we started. Um, but through the process, we learned to look at a balanced scorecard of indicators. And in the beginning, it was just a common sense look at, hey, how, what's our staff retention like? Uh, our turnovers, you know, fifty-five percent per year. You know, it's pretty difficult to <laughs> keep uh, something, anything sustained when you're turning over more than half of your staff every year. So we need to work on staff retention. Uh, let's look at our student performance on state exams. Let's look at our student. Uh, just student morale, student climate, uh, the climate of the school, uh, the trust, uh, the relationships with our partners in the community. Um, there were a number of indicators that showed us that we had room for improvement. Um, and, you know, we just kind of went back to that old saying of, uh, I don't know if it was Einstein that said, you know, the, uh, the definition of insanity is to keep doing what you're doing and look for different results, expect different results. And so we, <laughs> we, do. we, we wanted different results, so we had to do something different. Didn't know what it looked like exactly, but we knew that we needed help in what we call, and I learned this because I later on, um, I, I did my doctorate work on this model, studying how it works in, in multiple districts. But we knew from our 
intuition in our experience that education is co-produced. We don't have control over all the factors, where these students are coming from, their home life, their, all of these other factors. So education is co-produced. So we have control over some of the factors, but certainly not all of the factors. And if we're going to make the kind of change we need, we need to engage everybody so that we have at least influence over a lot of those other factors that we don't have control over. And we need that ownership um, with all of the partners, the families, and so forth to, to help us set those factors up for our students to become successful. And that was a important part of it is, is just understanding that it's co-produced. We need, none of us can do it all. We need the help of everybody. So, and, and we looked at the data with them. Our student performance wasn't stellar. Um, and our, our staff morale, our staff retention, um, a number of indicators. I can't even think of all of them, but uh, most of them showed that that we had a lot of room for improvement. We used to call it the burning platform. You know, we're standing on this platform and it's burning out from underneath us, and just <laughs> right through any any moment unless we do something different. Hmm. So you made this decision to move towards personalized learning, and when we talk about shifting our schools to personalized learning. Uh, sometimes we'll get pushback, and that pushback will be in the form of a lot of the mandates and regulations that we have. And you mentioned student uh, performance on state test scores earlier. Mm-hmm. Despite being in this performance model, how do your students perform on state tests? Okay. Well, we we still have room for growth. We always do. <laughs> We're a continuous improvement uh, system. But... We found in the initial years of, of the change that our performance, our students' performance on the state exams did increase significantly within the first five years. And we went from, I think at that time we were using the California achievement tests. Um, we had just switched from the Iowa basics, maybe. I don't remember. It was way back then. But uh, the... It, within the first five years, I believe we went from the bottom quartile to the third quartile in average student performance um, on state exams. So, you know, we weren't the highest scoring uh, district in the state or, or anywhere in the nation, obviously, but w- we saw that as a significant improvement. Um, again, I, I want to point this out, though, that we have 10 content areas, and those areas that are testing, usually reading, writing, and math, sometimes science, those are important indicators of our students' performance and capacity and potential and all of that. But they're only a piece of the pie, mm-hmm. a slice of the pie. So we were equally interested in how our students were performing in some other content areas that our communities told us were important. Um, Community service, for example, giving back to your community is something that was highly valued in this input process. So we developed standards and assessments on our own from preschool through graduation in the area of community service, Uh, career development. Um, Of course, there's, there's social sciences, there's, uh, physical education, nutrition. So all of our content areas are equally important. And our state tests, uh, the results that we get from those are one indicator that give us, uh, you know, something to use, to some data to make decisions with. But they're not the entire, they're not the tail that wags the dog in our district. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a really important point to communicate to our listeners, too, that as leadership, we make that decision, and along with our school boards, too, that we value that test score, but it is only one piece of the pie. It is only one representation of a very small sliver of what our students know and are able to do, too. And I think another takeaway is that um, as a leader, 
and as a school district, you've made the decision to say that, yes, we will still meet all these regulations and all the traditional indicators of success, but we also believe that there's a a lot more to that. And that's what we want to focus on. And moving to personalized learning allows you to sort of spread the net wide and, and grab all those other things and provide those opportunities for students to develop those areas that are also important, but may not be tested or represented by that state test score. Well said. Yes. We, I, I always say we'll meet the letter of the law, but <laughs> we, we, and, and you know, there's some good in meeting the letter of the law. There's some very important reasons and good intentions for statutes and regulations um but again that doesn't we don't allow that to be the tail that wags the dog that's just a piece of what we do and we want holistic learners we want holistic education system that prepares students for life for success in life after they graduate and as a prime example the student's a requirement I started as superintendent uh, 11 years ago was that, well, almost 12 years. Anyway, the uh, the students, before they graduate, they do a, a school-to-life presentation to the school board because I, I made it a, a goal that all of our graduates and all of our board members would know each other and be able to articulate uh, the students would be able to articulate what they've learned, what experience they've had, and the connections they've made to something after school, the plans they have for after they graduate, and articulate that to the school board. And and actually, those are, they do that during board meetings. That's that's the most uh, joyful part of the, each board meeting. Those student presentations, they have, they really make it real when we hear what each student is doing uh, and planning to do after they leave us as graduates. Very neat. Yeah, that's really exciting. I know our board always enjoys hearing that, but that's actually something we haven't done. Um, that idea of what are they doing next, Randy, that, that might be interesting. Um, so talk to us a little bit, Bob, about learner agency. You've, you've already indicated that your students do have a lot of learner agency. You're developing these IEPs for every student, and students are engaged in that process. Um, you know, how much control do they have over designing their learning experiences? And can you give us an example or two of what this might look like for your learners? Sure. We have so many different processes. We're very process-oriented. One of the processes is, for example, we just did this. So in this April, uh, we began making plans for next school year. And we bring all of our staff together, and I call it collective cognition. Uh, We began looking at all of our student needs, our data, um, student interests, what might be happening next year that that we can tag onto? Is it the Olympics? Is it the elections? Is it the? Um, and we come up with some ideas about what kinds of overarching umbrella themes might be uh, used, which then students at each school within each school can use to develop smaller thematic units. Uh, under that umbrella, and then even more specific individual learning plans under that umbrella. And so it's a a continuous year-round cycle, starting with that big picture and then getting more and more detailed. And then the student, you know, for example, in our, we have personal and social standards, and that is a content area well, we call it personal social service now. It's kind of evolved through the years. So personal social service has uh, something uh, has, has, is loaded with standards about processes that are life skills, you know, goal setting, uh, building consensus, uh, teamwork, and things like that. And, and it starts in preschool and it goes through graduation. And so it gets more and more rigorous and and complex and sophisticated as they go through our system. 
But those processes that they're learning uh, apply, they're transferable to any career and even your own living your own life, you know, managing your own household. Um, and so the students learn those processes and as they advance through the levels of personal and social skills, we see their capacity growing to take that agency, uh, to become empowered, to have ownership. And pretty soon, it was very interesting in the beginning, we saw this from students before we saw it from, from the adults, students would be making proposals to teachers and say, hey, you know, I'm really into this scheme and I want to <clears throat> do a, uh, a indiv individual learning plan on skiing where I study the different snow types and viscosity and whatever. They come up with this whole thing that's based on their passion, their interest, and then they, they list out all of the standards that it will address and how they're going to demonstrate that they have mastered those standards. And then teachers are all of a sudden the facilitator, the guide, helping the students flesh out that idea, make sure that it actually is addressing the content knowledge that they need to learn, as well as the process knowledge, and, and that the demonstration at the end of that unit is adequate to show that they have mastered or, or proven proficient in those uh, standards. So as they advance through our system and their own independent skills begin to grow, they take on more and more of that learner agency. And when they do that, Bob, do they have, you know, certain like criteria, like you have to have math standards or you can use um, ELA standards or, you know, what does that look like? Then, and that's, I'm glad you bring that up. So in the beginning, uh, younger years, they're more teacher directed and the, te the development of thematic units. There's still, let me back up. There's still class-wide instruction that there's, you know, Madeline Hunter lesson plans haven't completely been tossed out. They didn't throw the, you know, the, uh, what do they say? The, the baby out with the bathwater. There's still some <laughs> class-wide <laughs> class instruction. We, we have an instructional model. It's called, you know, that has four levels, direct instruction, practical application, interactive simulation, and then real life application. And we strive to get to the real life application, but we know there's some fundamental instructional knowledge uh, that they need in the beginning. So that happens in the beginning, that, that direct instruction. And then as they begin developing their own individual learning plans, they, they have a lot of autonomy in coming up with ideas and again, depending on their level of sophistication and capacity with, uh, with in their independent uh, learning skills, independent living skills, et cetera, the, the teacher will individually and situationally weigh in on, okay, let's look at what your plan, what you're proposing as a plan and then let's look at your progress in all 10 content areas. And I noticed over here in science, you haven't advanced for the last six months on a single standard. Maybe we ought to think about including some science standards in here and how might we do that? And so that's the kind of discussion that happens with the teacher and the student. Um, and then, we'll, as I said, we'll try to involve the parents uh, when possible uh, so that they're engaged as well. And, and, and then they play a role and take ownership as well. So let's move off the topic of the learning and let's look at the leadership and the leadership that's required to bring about these shifts and these changes. So you had mentioned earlier about uh, this idea of gaining ownership from the whole community and the staff. Can you talk mm -hmm. a little bit more in detail about what you did as a leader and what your leadership team did uh, to empower that community and that staff? Sure. 
we again uh, there there was a a school board and a superintendent at that time that made that public commitment and that you know that we are going we have some pretty poor data we're going to do something different we're going to come to you and ask for your input on what that different looks like and then we're going to act on that and so the acting on it was the part that Trent began to build the ownership. Um, we went through that first process, process and we got input and we developed our first set of standards based on all of that input. And so we used not, you know, we had regular traditional content areas such as reading, writing, math, science, social studies, but then we also included cultural awareness and career development and personal and social and service learning. Um, things that came directly from our communities. And when people saw, saw that those were now content areas and students were going to receive instruction and be assessed on those, and they were equally important to the areas that the state tested, then the trust began to grow that all of a sudden, hey, this school district's listening to us and they're using our input to develop a new system that's based on our input and our kids' needs. And that leaders, that kind of leadership has been sustained. Um, the leadership also was, I guess I would say, pushed down to or expanded to student leadership. You know, we wanted to build staff leadership and as well student leadership. So we began embedding leadership standards within our personal and social skills and teaching those. And we didn't, we were generalist teachers. Many of us, many of us had endorsements in, you know, one or two content areas, math or science, but we were in small schools and we were teaching everything because we were generalists. And in a way that worked in our advantage because it's easy to integrate all content areas when you're teaching everything. You don't have to walk down the hall and try to co-plan with somebody else when you have all the students and you're teaching it all. So you, unless you're having inner turmoil about fighting with yourself over <laughs> the lesson plan, it's pretty easy to integrate things in um, mm -hmm. into your into your thematic units. Uh, but that leadership also had to, I go back to three things that I, I read early in, in the process. I think I was a district-wide principal at the time, and I read it from uh, American Psychological Association report. Uh, I can't cite it any longer, but uh, it, it essentially said, and this is just paraphrasing, there's three things that motivate that, that make people happy and motivate people the most. And, and one of those is uh, folks want to be involved in some kind of complex work. The second one was they want some autonomy in how and when that work gets completed. And third is they want that work. They want to do that work in a social setting. They want to do it with others and belong to something that's larger than just themselves. And so I always hearken back to that and try to set up the conditions in our school district so that those three criteria are met. Our teachers are working on complex work. We are finding success with that. They're working on it together. They feel uh, as if they are, uh, they have autonomy, I would say. and through that ownership ownership is built and they do feel that they are part of something larger than an individual. And so that kind of leadership I think is important to sustain and to articulate. And, and let me go back to that, that beginning where I said the, the ownership, building the ownership in the beginning, um, and the agency, all you know, we usually just stick with ownership, but agency seems to be more more of a common term in the lower 48. But uh, 
building that in the beginning was important. Huge step in getting us over that that resistance to change that you always go through in any organization when you make change. And it got us over that first hurdle. But that doesn't mean that you stop attending to, deliberately attending to, building ownership, building agency. So we go through the process of updating our standards, gathering more input from the communities, um, updating what we call our shared purpose. It's right here on the wall behind me. Mm -hmm. Um, And when all of the community members, the staff, the students have a role, have a voice in developing and updating the standards and updating the shared purpose, that ownership, it remains intact. So not only is it important to do that in the beginning as a leader, but it's, and it's essential, I would say, in the beginning, but it's very important to continue to pay attention to it, deliberately uh, focus on it uh, on a somewhat of a regular cycle as a leader. So if you were going to give leaders, you know, a piece of advice or two pieces of advice, you know, what are the take home points? What are those, you know, one or two ideas that is truly advice you'd want to pass on to leaders who are, um, you know, like us in a place where we're starting to think about some of these possibilities and, you know, our own context and how we navigate some of the challenges that you have navigated already. Sure. And, and, as you know, you know, I wrote an article on that recently. Um, mm-hmm. And so I'll just quickly say those, the three things, and then I can elaborate on them as much as you want. But one is attention. It's, I called it the ABCs of, of, uh, of a, a superintendency, but paying attention to your own school district, um, not being distracted by whether it's politicians or vendors, uh, mm. et cetera, who may want to, pull you away from your focus on your student needs. And that happens all the time. So you cannot lose focus of your own district. I used to say, you got to pay attention to your home or you're not going to have a home to go to. The next is the, what I call uh, uh, strategic building. We have continuous improvement processes. We have strategic planning processes Um, and I've merged and then we have community input always these input processes and so I feel in our fast-paced highly networked society that we're in even in rural Alaska with social media and everything the world just seems to be moving quickly these days and it's no longer it hasn't worked for us to go through a traditional strategic planning process and build this strategic plan and have it in a binder and, you know, take two or three years to do that because it's outdated by the time you get that binder put together. So we call it, or I call it, um, instead of strategic planning, I embed all of those processes, continuous improvement, community input, strategic planning, and just call it uh, strategic building. So you're nimble, you're making changes as you're strategically planning, you're taking input through that process, and your agility to, uh, your ability to be agile and take a good idea and implement it quickly rather than wait until the strategic plan is done and in a binder is just, (laughs) it's important, (laughs) you know, it's like the whole time versus, versus learning thing. And then the last one is collaboration. And, And that's where sometimes I confuse people because I say, pay attention to your own district, your own students, your own staff, your needs, your communities. But then I say, you need to collaborate with others. And I have found that we do, because we can't do it all, we do need to, especially in the economic times we're in, uh, we need to collaborate with others. There's others out there that are not part of our organization, but could be partners that are doing things that would enhance the learning experience for our students. And if we can collaborate with those 
other organizations. Some of them are other school districts. Some of them are post-secondary education. Some of them are just businesses um, where we put students in as interns or, you know, job shadows. The more partnerships we can develop and the more collaboration we can have, the broader the menu of learning opportunities we can provide for our students. So while we're paying attention to our schools, our district, our our student needs, we also are reaching out and collaborating as much as possible with other schools and other districts. So those are the three points that, that I focus on when I'm trying to give advice. Yeah, and I make so many connections to the things that you're saying, like your first thing of focusing on the needs of your of your own system. I think it's uh, really easy as leaders to to take that bureaucracy that comes down at us and just keep yes. pushing it on on down. And one of the one of the struggles and challenges of leadership is how do you make the space for your own uh, district for your own needs and still meet those requirements as you mentioned right. earlier. But right. how do you customize it and focus on what your specific needs are uh, in your school or your district. And the second uh, idea of capacity building, too, that's something that we're really um, understanding in our situation is how do we build the capacity of our leaders to bring about these cha- this change, Their, our parents to understand this, and our students to uh, embed themselves in it because they're going to actually be living it. And then your last idea about collaboration this very podcast is an example of how right. um, one one example of how we're collaborating, trying to learn from other people like yourself and and many of the authors that we've uh, interviewed so far. So I think your three suggestions, your ABCs, are really powerful for us as well as any leaders. I think to learn from. And we will link that article in the show notes so everybody can go check out uh, the ABCs that you have described. All right. So our last question for you today. Huh. After okay. this excellent conversation is, so what's next for your school district? What's inspiring you? What What is the next step on your uh, expedition here? Well, one thing that we have, uh, uh, there's an, a few things. One thing that we have done that I think also sets us apart from traditional education is that in every content area, we have standards. So in math, there are content standards, but we also have process standards. Um, in science, in reading, in personal and social skills, we have both content standards as well as process standards because the processes are what students follow to learn the content, and we want them to be independent learners. I would like to see more choice built into our our levels. It's as students advance from level one to level two to level three. Um, As a former math teacher, I know some students may feel that in math, it's better to go from algebra one to algebra two and then to geometry. Another student may be better to say, hey, I want to do algebra one and then geometry and then algebra two. I would like to see more flexibility and choice within our own standards uh, performance-based system for student choice to navigate through our standards um, in a customized way, mm-hmm. still meeting our graduation requirements, but the the path that they choose have more options and more choice involved. So that's an important thing for, for me to see happen in the future. Um, and then I, I would like to see, um, I don't want to say that I, that we want to sell our idea to anybody because we're not salespeople. But we do want to see, we believe that this system is better for for students, regardless of where those students are on the globe. We would like to see more schools and districts uh, move towards more of a performance-based model rather than be... Uh, I would say perpetuate mediocrity through traditional education. And if we can be of assistance with that, we would like to see that. Um, And it is exciting to see that others are uh, embracing competency-based learning, you know, all over the the lower 48 now. 
Um, in Alaska, there's one other district that has stuck with it. Um, and at their superintendent used to work in our school district. So mm-hmm. that is kind of telling. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, there were at one point 12 districts that were trying it. Um, and as I said, there were mixed results. Many of those districts have, have reverted back to traditional education mm-hmm. because it's a tough thing. It's that ch- kind of change is difficult. So without being sales folks and trying to uh, convince people that this is a better way, I like to be able to say, hey, this is sustainable. Look at what we're doing. Learn from what we're doing and make your own system that won't look exactly like ours, but will have some of the components of what we do because it is better for students. So just to be a quiet influence on other school systems around the nation or, or the globe because it is what I firmly believe that it is a better way uh, to educate students than, than the agricultural era uh, system that, that we grew up in. Well, Brandy, are you up for a trip to Alaska? Sure. Book it. <laughs> Book it. That sounds great. <laughs> Well, Anytime. thank you. <laughs> well, thank you so much uh, for joining us, Bob. There are so many great resources available that we will link in the show um, documents that you have created, including that ABCs of leading a district that you mentioned and talked about. Well, thank you for your time. I, I do feel it's an honor to be part of this and be asked to be part of that. So. Um, yeah, much appreciated. Thank you. Well, thank you. And it's great that you are so uh, enthusiastic about sharing your district story because clearly you've done some some amazing work and uh, we're delighted to have the, had the opportunity today to talk to you about it. Each episode, we leave you with, with a question to think about with the idea of provoking some conversation. This episode's question, what have you learned from today's conversation about implementing a performance model of learning? If you've enjoyed today's episode, would like to comment or just find out more about the resources and links we shared in today's episode, check out the show notes at tltalkradio.org. Look for season two, episode 36. We would love for you to rate the show on iTunes. Let us know your star rating and consider leaving a one or two sentence review. If you have time to do that, you'll help new folks discover this content. That's it for now. We'll see you next episode for a conversation with another innovative thought leader. Thanks again, Bob. Thanks, Bob. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. want to simplify your school's technology, save teachers time, and improve students' performance on state assessments? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com forward slash BE to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve all of these goals. That's IXL.com forward slash BE.